Our loving Father, we are so grateful, dear God, for the opportunity and the privileges to hear heaven speak. We thank you, Lord, for the time in which we can dedicate our minds in a special way to study, to show ourselves approved unto God, that we can be workmen that need not be ashamed, for we have rightly divided your words of truth. Lord, I pray, please take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. I pray that you will literally put your words in my mouth. And I pray that these words will reach even the hardest of hearts, that those stony hearts will become hearts of flesh. And it will not be by human might nor human power, but by your spirit. And so grant us the presence of your Holy Spirit even now. And may he come and truly teach us and truly open our eyes and help us behold wondrous things out of thy law. This is our prayer that we do ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there's a statement about God's character. I learned a long time ago, and it has absolutely changed my way of studying the Bible. I learned that when Jesus says, search the scriptures for in them, you think you have eternal life. He says, for they are they which testify of me, which means that Christ can be found all throughout scripture. And whenever I see Jesus, I see salvation. I see love. I see power, real power. And so I've learned to condition my mind that whatever I read in the Bible, it is helping me understand something about my Savior. And then to understand that is even deep because the more that I understand about Jesus is the more that I understand about our Heavenly Father. Because Jesus came to reveal the very character of our Father which art in heaven. I remember one time I was in Luke the 11th chapter and I want you to turn there with me. And as I was going to Luke the 11th chapter... I started to look at things in the Bible that would help reveal characteristics of God. And I found one in Luke the 11th chapter that I thought was so amazing. Because what I saw in Luke 11, I actually identified in my biological father. And I thought it was very interesting. It was in Luke the 11th chapter that the Bible says something that I want us to all consider. And uh, when you get there, just let me know by saying amen. amen. The Bible says in Luke the 11th chapter, we're going to start at verse 9. And it says in Luke, the 11th chapter, we're considering the 9th verse. And the Bible says, And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh, receiveth. And he that seeketh, findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. And then Jesus puts this rationale, this, this mind frame of reasoning in the next few verses. He says, If a son shall ask bread of any of you, that is a father, will he give him a stone? What do you think the answer is? No. It says, or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Well, the answer is no. Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Again, the answer is no. And then verse 13 was the key verse. If ye then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much what? How much more? Shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? The Spirit of God is a good gift, is it not? And I praise God that every day we have a privilege of seeking more and greater endowment and outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. God loves to give. God so loved that he gave. And I began to look at that and I said, that's beautiful because that was my father. My father, whenever there was an opportunity for him to give me something or to give any of my siblings something, I'm the youngest of eight. 
And when my dad would go ahead, and dad never gave us things in common ways. Dad would always set up the stage. He would, he would set it up real nice, and he would create all sorts of surprises, and he couldn't just simply say, son, here's something for you. He had to make a big thing out of it. He would have to go ahead and plan and strategize and do it just right so that at the moment and the element of surprise that my heart would just leap with joy, and I would jump on my daddy and give him the biggest hug and to say, daddy, thank you for this precious gift. I have found that that character has now passed on to me once I became a father. And now all of a sudden I got these two boys and these two girls. And anytime there's an opportunity that we want to do something good for them, we would go ahead and make a big deal out of it. We would go ahead and plan and strategize. And I would talk to my wife and I said, we got to do it just right. And we would go ahead. In other words, I have discovered the love of giving. It's like I love to give and I like to give and I like to make a big deal sometimes out of giving. And so it is that as I see this character of God and I saw that characteristic of God in my father and now that characteristic has taken possession of my own mind, I began to reflect way back in the beginning of time when God made man. And when God made man, my brothers and sisters, it was after man was made, after man was coming into existence, that God decided to give a very special gift to man. And you know what that gift was called? It was called the Sabbath day. Amen. A gift. You know, most of God's people do not understand the precious experiences of this gift. Today, when you think of us being Sabbath keepers, all we simply say is that at certain hours on a certain day, we show up and then eventually go home. Sometimes the Sabbath has become so dumbed down to the people of God that sometimes we look forward more to its end than its beginning. And an enemy had done this. God wanted us to understand that this was a gift that in an unadulterated manner that heaven and earth could have special communion one with another. And we have become so busy and we have become so perplexed and we work so hard throughout the week that even during the sacred hours of God's Sabbath day rest, even when we're in the sanctuary, sometimes we find ourselves more sleeping than listening. Not understanding that sometimes inspiration says that it's just when the minister is about to give the word that that individual needs most, Satan will come behind them and breathe on them. And put them to sleep so that they will not hear the very point of the message that would have brought victory in their lives. Some of us don't even know how to enjoy the gift that God gave to humanity, which is his holy Sabbath day of rest. And one of the reasons why is because we pack the Sabbath up with too much stuff. Too many services, too many meetings. You know, it's funny. I remember I grew up in, I'm going to say this, I grew, up, I grew up in the black conference. I'm so thankful there won't be any black sides of heaven and there won't be any white sides. But I grew up in the quote unquote black conference and in the black conference I noticed that there was this common thread, this common activity that you would see. You would have Sabbath school and then you'd have church and then you have prison ministry and then you have Bible study and then you have Adventist youth service and there was all these things just piling up and I remember that I grew up in that so that's how I did church so I was going ahead and doing this thing as if it was normal and then one day my family and I moved out to the country praise God and when we moved out to the country 
We switched conferences. We joined a different church, and all of a sudden we weren't under the black conference. Now we were under the quote-unquote white conference. So when we went to one of the churches that was under the quote-unquote white conferences, we noticed that it was right after 11 o'clock hour. We would say, what time's Bible study? What time is the youth service? And they would say, we don't have none of that. And I said, excuse me? And they said, nope, we don't have any of that stuff. I said, so what do you do? They said, we go home, we go to places in nature, and we enjoy times for the remaining hours of the Sabbath with our families. And I said, I've heard strange things today. I said, I've never heard of that. You mean to tell me that after the 11 o'clock hour? That all y'all do is you go, if they have a potluck, that's a big deal. That would be like once a quarter. They would go ahead and after the service, they would leave. And then they would go ahead. So for a while, my wife and children and I, we're kind of looking at each other after this church like we don't know what to do now. We got too much time. We got four more hours before sunset. And we had to figure out all this stuff. And eventually God started getting us used to it. We got to a point that we couldn't wait for service to be over. So that way we could go ahead and go to our favorite place in nature. And we would enjoy time. With the creator. And with one another. And I began to realize, wow, you can enjoy the Sabbath gift a lot better when it's not so bogged down with all these meetings, though they be even religious. God has appointed the Sabbath day to be special communion time with Him. You see, when you love Jesus, you don't long for the Sabbath to pass. When you love Jesus, you look forward to having that unadulterated communion with God. When you get to study like you've never studied before, when you get to pray like you never prayed before, when you get to think like you never thought before. And I think to myself sometimes, you know, I have the privilege of staying by uh, one of the saints' homes here, and I just love how every time I get up in the morning, the first thing I see is that incredible ocean. And when I see that water, my brother, you don't understand, my brain goes into like another world. Because in Revelation, we're told that the voice of Jesus is like the voice of many waters. And then when I see that beautiful ocean water, and I just start thinking about it, and then I see the sunlight shine on the water, and the light from the sun shining on the water glimmers off the water and pierces my eyes, and then I remember that Jesus is also the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness. And then when I see the waters just crash against the rocks, and the rocks are unmovable, and then I look at those rocks, and I remember that God is the rock of my salvation. Then I look at all that sand of the sea and then I begin to look and say, you know what? It would be a waste of time to even try to count how many granules of sand there is on this ground because it is innumerable. And God says, so shall be the company that shall be with me in heaven. According to Revelation 7. You are very privileged to be surrounded by so many object lessons and how much the more on God's holy Sabbath day of rest we should spend time there. Learning of our creator. You see, my brothers and sisters, when God gave us the gift of the Sabbath, when God gave us that gift, remember, we talked about it, there were two things that he wanted our focus to be on and the focus was not simply to please him. The focus was that he would also please us. The Bible actually showed us. Look at the text. It said right there in Exodus 20, right? For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, 
the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. God wanted us to take time to commemorate creation. We should literally, and parents, we should deliberately, literally, with great effort and energy, we should seek to gather our little children. To do all that we can, that we prepare as many object lessons in nature as possible to saturate their minds with Jesus. God says the Sabbath day was one of the great days that we could do that. Because my brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, the more that you study nature, the more that we learn about God, the greater our hearts will become in love with him. Because to know God is to love God. That's Desire of Ages, page 22. God wants us to understand that in the Sabbath, he wanted us to take time for commemoration of creation. And you have to ask yourself, is that my routine every Sabbath? Woe be unto the pastors. My pastor friends, of whom I love and I will warn, be careful. Because sometimes on God's holy day, pastors don't get to rest. And they definitely don't get to rest with their families. And sometimes as pastors and as ministers, we have to be very deliberate and we got to know how to dip out. I praise God for my wife. Let me tell you, one time we were somewhere preaching and we began to do a subject on the family. And when we started teaching on the family, it was in California. And when we started teaching on the family, we got to a point where we were doing an anointing service, myself and several other evangelists. And we, the people were coming in droves with so much need because so many homes have been broken as a result of the devil and his work. That here it is, we're praying, we're pleading, we're fasting, we're praying, we're anointing, we're praying, we're crying. We're going through all these things with all these saints. And it got to a point that I was wiped out. I was tired. One sister was talking to me, and literally she was talking to me, and I was like, yes, sister, yes. And all I know is everything went black. And next thing you know, I woke up. And I realized I fell asleep while this woman was talking to me. That's how tired I was. And then I, I, it was fear. I looked at her face because I thought for sure she was going to look at me like, I can't believe you fell asleep on me, Pastor. And I looked and that sister was going, and so you see, Pastor, da, 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 and she just kept going. I said, praise the Lord, she didn't catch it. But that's how tired you can get. You understand that? Sometimes we forget we're human. We keep acting like we're superhuman, but God has ways to remind us. And I remember that as a result of all of this weariness, it got to a point that I said, honey, we got to go. And as my wife and I started walking up the hill, getting ready to head into our uh, room that was set for us for the evening. Next thing you know, we looked up and we saw a whole line of people waiting for us right at the top. You know what my teammate did? My teammate, my wife, you know what she did? She said, follow me. Boom, grab my hand. And we literally, she found a back way to get inside of the building. So that way I could get up to the room. And brothers, brothers, when I got up into that room, I passed out on that bed. You hear me? Sometimes we as ministers of the gospel can begin working so hard. It seems like we don't understand Matthew 9. When you read Matthew, the ninth chapter, the Bible said right there in verse 36. Look at the text. Go to Matthew 9. Somehow we have missed this text. It seems, and listen, this was a big problem even with our pioneers of old in Adventism. In Matthew 9, Jesus gave a very specific counsel, and I want you to see what he said in Matthew 9, and now we're going to consider verse 36. And notice what the Bible says. In Matthew 9 and verse 36, watch the text very carefully and watch what Jesus was trying to teach. The Bible says in Matthew 9 and verse 36, and if you're there, please say amen. Amen. 
The Bible says, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. That's the heart of any minister. Any minister, when he comes amongst the people and he sees the pain, he sees the hurt, he sees the suffering, he sees the confusion, he sees all of that. When a minister sees that, there's something in his heart that is moved with compassion because they look like sheep without a shepherd. They need help. And so sometimes the minister will forget themselves that they may minister to others. But then look at what Jesus said to bring balance. In verse 37, he says, Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. And oh, how I like verse 38. It says, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Amen. Some ministers have read this verse and understand it to say, pray ye the Lord of the harvest that God will give you all the strength you need so you can finish the work all by yourself. And that's how some ministers labor. And then they wonder when they get stricken with all these diseases that are sometimes irreversible. My brothers and sisters, a very powerful gospel worker in the Northeast of the United States of America 1.30 Wednesday morning, fell asleep in Jesus. And when I came by his bedside earlier on, when he was dying, I remember he said to me as a young man, him being a faithful gospel worker, gospel medical missionary evangelist, he said, Dwayne, he says, you listen to me. And this is exactly what he said. He said, I pulled a James White. That was his exact words. Now, if you understand Adventist history, you understand what I just said. James White would walk sometimes six miles just for one Bible study. James White put people well before his own health. And he did things that out of a love for people, he would do it. But God did not ask him to do all of that. And he ended up getting sick and in 1881. He died. And Sister Ellen White had to go ahead and figure out life without her husband by her side, her teammate. And so it is that James White's activities are on record so that we can learn from that. And so when this evangelist said to me, he he told me that. He said, Dwayne, he says, I pulled a James White. I pushed myself too hard. I should have pulled back. I should have focused more on making more laborers. And he did. He tried to make more laborers, but there was just a lack of temperance even in gospel work. And he got himself a disease, my brothers and sisters, that has a 100% death rate. There's nothing in the natural remedy world, and there's nothing in the pharmaceutical world that can reverse this disease. And as a result of that, that disease took its toll and met him at a head 1.30 a.m. this past Wednesday morning. And he's sleeping now in Jesus. We have to understand that as much as the people have their needs, we must recognize we are not supermen and superwomen. And there's a time to work and there's a time to pull back and to rest. And God is so loving that he knew if I leave man to themselves, they will overwork themselves. And therefore, in love, God gave a gift. And it's called his blessed Holy Sabbath day of rest. And some of us still don't know how to rest even on Sabbath. And my hope and my prayer is that while you're trying to teach all the other reforms in the world, I pray that you will experience Sabbath reform. Amen.
Get back to studying nature. Get back to studying the creator. Get back to studying creation. And it's not limited there because it's not only in Exodus 20, 11, but the other great purpose of the Sabbath is in Deuteronomy 5, 15. The Bible goes on to say, and remember that thou wast a servant in the land of Egypt and that the Lord thy God brought thee out thence through a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm. Therefore, the Lord thy God commanded thee to keep the Sabbath day. God says, I want you to remember that when you were in the Egypt of sin and bondage, God says, I want you to commemorate when I delivered you. God says, I want you on the Sabbath day to sit back and think about where you were and where you are. God says, I want you to take some time to remember the pit that you were in and how it was God and God alone that brought you out. My brothers and my sisters, if we would focus more on creation and redemption, you would have a true Happy Sabbath. Amen. Not just the coin term that we all say when we know we are the last thing but happy. But we will actually say happy Sabbath and it will come from the heart. Amen. Because we knew how to finally receive the gift. Are you following? Yes. But, you know, I learned something about God. I told you I love studying his character. The more you study God's character, you learn that God never just gives. But he gives and does exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. Is that right? And so when God gave the gift of the Sabbath, watch my words, this divine institution. When God gave this divine institution to mankind as a gift from not just heaven, but from the heart of God. When God gave that gift, God says, I can't just leave it there. God says, I'm going to give them another gift, yay, another divine institution. And you know what that gift was called? It was called marriage. Brothers and sisters, God gave the gift of marriage. God says, I can't hold it back. God in his very nature says, I got to go exceedingly abundantly above. God says it's not enough just to give them Sabbath, but I'm also going to give them the blessed gift of marriage. You see, let us go again to the book of Ephesians 5. Let's take a look at it. I love studying it. I hope you never get tired of it. In Ephesians 5, notice what the Bible says as we start at verse 22, and then we'll take it down to 32. And because it's quite a few verses, what we'll do is I'll read one, you'll read two, I'll read the other, you read the next, and then we'll take it all the way down to the end. So we're in Ephesians 5, and let's notice what the Bible says as we now consider Ephesians 5 and verse 22. And I want you to watch this, because this was the other gift that God gave to mankind. The Bible says in Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 32. Let's notice what the Bible says. And when you get there, please say amen. Amen. The Bible says in Ephesians 5, 22 to 32, it says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife 
loveth himself. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning what? Christ and the church. God gave the gift of marriage because he wanted to teach not just temporal, but eternal lessons. And so when God established these two gifts to humanity, when God put these two divine institutions together, we will notice that these things are in fact twins. They're holy twins. And here it is that when God brought these two divine institutions together, there were some lessons that he wanted us to receive from it. You see, God doesn't just simply give gifts, but God gives gifts with purpose. I think you need to catch that. God does not just give gifts, but God gives gifts to his children that have great purpose and eternal value. Are you following? And when God gave these twins, when he gave these divine institutions, the Sabbath, and he also gave marriage, there were lessons that he wanted us to catch from it. And what were some of the lessons? Number one, God wanted us to understand that God created them and they both existed before sin. Let us notice the verses, Genesis 2, 1 to 3, and Genesis 2, 20 to 25. Let's go to the text. These were the great reasons, and my brother, the world needs this kind of education, but sadly, churches need this kind of education as well. The Bible says in Genesis 2, watch the text very carefully. In Genesis, the second chapter, considering verses 1 to 3, I'm starting very fundamental with you. We are in appetizer phase. The entree is coming. In Genesis 2, notice what the Bible says. Genesis, the second chapter, and if you're there, please say amen. Amen. The Bible says in Genesis 2, starting at verse 1, thus, the heavens and the earth were finished. And all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it, he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. So notice God was the one that created the Sabbath and it existed before sin. It was a holy, divine institution. Then when we go to Genesis 2, notice what it says in verses 20 to 25. The Bible says in Genesis 2, starting at verse 20, And Adam gave names to all cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found in help meet for him. And the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a what? Woman. Amen. It says, made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be how much? One flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were Not ashamed. And so we see that, again, marriage was made. It was a divine holy institution. It was created by God, and it existed before sin. Amen? Amen. So the first lesson we learn about Sabbath and marriage, being these holy twins, is that they were both created by God, and they both existed before sin. But they also both taught or pointed us to Christ as our righteousness and holiness. 
How do we know that? Well, again, go to Exodus 31 now, and let's look at verses 12 and 13. How do we know that this point? Remember, when God gave the gift of the Sabbath, it was to teach a divine purpose. So let's notice that. We're looking at Exodus 31, and now we're looking at verses 12 and 13. Exodus 31, and we're now looking at verses 12 and 13. And let's notice what the Bible says here. In Exodus 31, considering now verses 12 and 13. If we're there, please say amen. amen. The Bible says in Exodus 31 and verse 12, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbath ye shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that what? I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. Literally, true Sabbath keeping points us to righteousness by faith. Because notice the verse did not say we, it's a sign to know that we make ourselves holy. It says it was a sign to know that I am the Lord that does sanctify you. True Sabbath keepers should understand righteousness by faith best. Because that is the great grand purpose of the Sabbath. It helps us come in contact with the only one who is holy, that he is the only one that can make us holy. Are you following? So this is what God wanted to have as a great purpose within the Sabbath. It was to point us to Christ, our righteousness, Christ, our holiness. But it wasn't just Sabbath. It was also marriage. Let's go to Matthew 22. Let's notice the text. We're going to study the day. I want you to watch these verses very carefully. I've been praying, brothers and sisters. I said, Lord, make it plain. And before God makes it plain to you, he has to make it plain to me. And so I said, Lord, make it plain. There are certain parts of the verses that I was struggling with, but God has helped me. Watch Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, we learn about a wedding. A great, beautiful wedding. I like weddings. Do you like weddings? I like weddings as long as everybody behaves holy. I don't like weddings when they pervert the very blessed gift of God. There's some people that carry forth weddings and they treat it like parties. They treat it like these things where sometimes they celebrate bad behaviors and even sin. We have to understand that marriage is holy, my brothers and sisters. Remember, it is holy twins. Holy twins. Not just twins. Holy twins. Amen? And so marriage is holy and whenever there's a ceremony, that thing should be carried in the context of holiness. And so it is that when we look at Matthew 22, notice what the Bible says. There's a story of a wedding. And the story of the wedding goes like this, starting at verse... It says, then saith he to his servants, the wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways and as many as ye shall find bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. In other words, when this king came, this king did an investigative judgment. Are you following? The king performed an investigative judgment. He said, I'm going to make sure that everybody who's here belongs here. And he wanted to go ahead and see who has on the right wedding garments. Because you never go to a wedding in common clothes. You go into a wedding with wedding garments. And so it is that this investigative judgment is taking place in verse 11. It says, and when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was what? He was speechless. 
It said, then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, one thing we get from the reality in verse 14 of the chosen, you know, we talk about the call, the chosen and the faithful. But here it is that when we look at the chosen, we can select it back to the fact that they need to have on the right garments. Those who truly are the chosen, though everybody's called, the only ones chosen are the ones that have the right garment based on the context of the reading. Is that right? All right. So now understanding that, let's go to Revelation 19. When we go to Revelation 19th chapter, let's continue and let's learn some more about that garment because that garment means everything. The marriage was designed and put together, but the people had to have on the right garment to experience the power of the marriage. And so it is that in Revelation 19 now, we're looking at verse 6. And the Bible says in Revelation 19 and verse 6, it says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is what? The righteousness of the saints. So when you think of the wedding garment, we are thinking of the fine linen, and when you think of the fine linen, you're thinking of the righteousness of the saints. Are you following? And then it goes on to say in verse 9, and he saith unto me, write, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, these are true sayings of God. The wedding garment that all should have in a marriage is none other than the righteousness of God. These were the practical lessons that God was trying to teach through the model and the example of marriage. And that's why we read in Ephesians 5 and 27 that it talked about the importance of the church being without spot and without wrinkle, but would be holy and without blemish. And so when we look at the lessons that we were to gain both from the Sabbath and from marriage, they both taught or pointed us to Christ as our righteousness and our holiness. It was to be a lesson book. It was supposed to teach us how God one day was going to cover us with his righteousness, which we receive by faith that works by love. This is what God always wanted. Marriage was the great lesson book to learn holiness and righteousness from a holy and righteous God. Therefore, we learn point number one, God created them and they existed before sin. Can the church say amen? amen? Then the second lesson, they both taught and pointed us to Christ as our righteousness and holiness. Can the church say amen? amen. Then the third lesson was, they will both exist as a living testimony throughout eternity. Isn't that something? They will both exist as a living testimony throughout eternity. Now watch that. This one's very easy. Isaiah 66. Notice what the Bible says. Somebody's getting nervous. They're saying, Brother Lemon, didn't you read Matthew 22 where Jesus says they neither marry nor give in marriage? Don't worry. I got it all cared. I got it taken care of. Fear not. Notice what the Bible says. Isaiah 66. In Isaiah the 66th chapter, notice what the Bible says. Isaiah 66. And notice what it says in verses what? 22 and 23. The Bible says in Isaiah 66, we're looking at verses 22 and 23. And when you get there, let me know by saying amen. amen. 
In Isaiah 66, 22 and 23, the Bible says, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. In the new earth, there shall be another Sabbath that we will keep as the people of God. Can the church say amen? So it's going to exist even throughout eternity. Now, what about marriage? The answer is, yes, it will exist, but it won't be between man with man, but between man, New Jerusalem, and God. Are you following? So now, let's notice that in Revelation 19 again. So we're in Revelation 19. Let's take a second look at the verse. In Revelation 19, notice what the Bible says. Revelation, we're looking at 19, and we're looking at verses 7 to 9. And then chapter 21, 9 through 11. And then chapter 22, 3 to 5. So notice what the Bible says. Revelation 19, starting at verse 7. If you're there, please say amen. Amen. The Bible says in Revelation 19, 7, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. So notice the word of the Lamb. The marriage of the Lamb. You see that? The marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Verse 9. And he saith unto me, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. So there's going to be the marriage of the Lamb that's going to take place. Now, watch how the Bible brings us out further in Revelation 21. So now we're going to Revelation, the 21st chapter. And now we're considering verses 9 to 11. Continuing with this thought, it says in Revelation 21, starting at verse 9, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's what? The lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Verse 11, having the glory of God and her light was like unto a stone, most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. So notice this is now a description of this bride that is referred to as none other than what? New Jerusalem. Very good. Now, if you were to just read down the rest of 21, the whole chapter, it's just descriptions of New Jerusalem. Descriptions of New Jerusalem. Then when you read chapter 22, starting at verse 1, it's still a description of New Jerusalem. Then when you get to verse 3 of chapter 22, what does it say? It says, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. Talking about the New Jerusalem. And his servants shall serve or worship him. And they shall see his face and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there. And they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign how long? Forever and ever. So this marriage of which the guests are invited to will all become one with God. This marriage lasts for how long? Forever and ever. So when we study Sabbath and marriage, they truly are divine institutions Number one, created by God that existed before sin. They are holy twins. 
Number two, the lesson book was that they both were to teach and point us to Christ, our righteousness. In these institutions, we were to learn how to be holy as God is holy. And when that takes place, we're going to celebrate holiness all throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity from one Sabbath to another. And we will finally be part of a marriage that will last as it was supposed to last forever. Talking about some serious holy twins. It is not a wonder, my brothers and sisters, that one day when the Pharisees came tempting Jesus in Matthew 19, Ellen White had a comment on it. She says, when the Pharisees afterward questioned him concerning the lawfulness of divorce, Jesus pointed his hearers back to the marriage institution as ordained at creation. Because of the hardness of your hearts, he said, Moses suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. He referred them to the blessed days of Eden, when God pronounced all things very good. Then marriage and the Sabbath had their origin. Twin institutions for the glory of God in the benefit of humanity. Isn't that something? Did we establish this from the Bible? So should we have a problem now that we're reading Ellen White? No, we should not. Ellen White is just magnifying what the Bible already said. So we read that in Adventist homepage 340, paragraph 4. Now, there are certain kinds of twins. You know, you have identical. You know, you have fraternal. And then you have something called co-joined. One of the things that interests me about the co-joined is that they are, they're basically indissolubly connected to one another. One twin can't say, I want to go right, and another twin say, I want to go left. There has to be mass cooperation. And when you think of co-joined twins, when one is affected, it actually can actually transfer over and affect the other person. Isn't that amazing? So I began to inquire, the Sabbath and marriage are twin institutions, but what kind of twins? We have identical, we have fraternal, we also have co-joined. What kind of twins? And then inspiration answered the question right here. In education, page 250, it says the Sabbath and the family were alike instituted in Eden. And in God's purpose, they are indissolubly linked together. You can't hurt one without hurting the other. When you affect one, you affect the other. When you try to tear down one, you will begin to tear down the other. And if there's a breach in any of these, it would be a shame when a church emphasizes one side of the breach and neglects the other. Are you following? God wanted us to understand that these were his ordained gifts. That he gave to humanity. And thinking of the great effects. Have you noticed that both the Sabbath and marriage have salvational components to it? Have you noticed that? If you study the Sabbath and its purpose. If you study marriage and its purpose. They have salvational eternal lessons. That God always in his mind wanted to impart to his people. And that's why they are so incredibly sacred. And I think now we can understand why they are so incredibly attacked. You see, my brothers and sisters, we are students of prophecy. We don't look at the Bible and we don't look at news like the world looks at it. 
We look at everything in life in the context of the great controversy. That's the vision that God has given to us. We don't look at events and happenstances and just say, oh, it happened because it happened. We always make connections and say, wait a minute. How does this event here and how does this event there play a role when we think of the unfolding of the great controversy? You see, we are told, my brothers and sisters, in inspiration. We're told in Christ Object Lessons 133, as we near the close of this world's history, the prophecies relating to the last days especially demand our study. God doesn't suggest it, he demands it. God says, I want my people to look at things in life and look at events in the world and look at it through the prophetic lens. And so God began to touch my mind and my heart. I said, wait a minute. Two gifts, two divine institutions. They were to teach eternal, soul-saving, and even very happy lessons for all who would receive it. True Sabbath keepers should be very happy people. They should not be a bunch of sad ventists. True Sabbath keepers should be some happy people. Why? Because they're connected to the God of heaven and earth. Who puts and imparts his love to us. Of which we become channels to give that love to others whom we come in contact with. True marriage? My brothers and sisters, when you have heaven on earth, you want to give more heaven to others you come in contact with. It was in God's plan that that's what marriage was always supposed to be. And so when we begin looking at this, it would not be a surprise that these twin institutions were prophetically under attack. You see, long ago, we were told by the prophet Daniel that that beast power in Daniel 7 and verse 25, it says that that beast power and he shall speak great words against the most high and shall wear out the saints of the most high and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until the time and the times and the dividing of time. The Bible prophesied that the very commandments of God, especially the commandment that pertains to time, that this part of God's law was going to be attacked. And brothers and sisters, it was not long ago, just a few years ago, that there was something that that fourth beast power. Who's that fourth beast power? Oh, how could you not answer me quickly after so many seminars? Saints? represents that fourth beast power? That is none other than Rome, first pagan, then papal. And here it is that when we look at that beast power, my brothers and sisters, the question is, is there an effort from that beast power to seek to change God's law, even that which pertains to time? Yes, it's not just limited to the dark ages, but it was going well beyond that. I remember when a little article came out in 1998, And for me, this article means everything because once you understood the article, once you understood the papacy, the Roman Catholic Church, once you understood their mindset and what their agendas were, then all you got to do is just constantly look to see how it's going to try to be fulfilled throughout whoever the popes are. It doesn't matter if it was John Paul, doesn't matter if it was Ratzinger, and it does not matter even if it's Francis. Once we begin to understand the foundation of Rome, of which all popes must stay loyal to. You can begin to see it. And he was bold enough to put it in writing. It was called D.S. Domini. And when that article, D.S. Domini, came out, he put it out bold-faced before anyone who understood how to read with the prophetic lens. And so it says, 
when through the centuries, she, that was talking about the Roman Catholic Church. This is from their own writings. This is not from us putting propaganda on an institution. These are their own statements. Even my Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, you got to accept this. This is coming from the authority of your church. They said, when through the centuries, she has made laws concerning Sunday rest, the church has had in mind above all the work of what? Servants and workers. So the way that Rome would always seek to pass Sunday laws in direct violation and contrast and rebellion to God's gift, the Sabbath, they would try to get that law passed by saying it would be beneficial to workers and servants. It would be beneficial to the people. And the reason why that's so important is because my brothers and sisters go to Revelation 13. Let's get a refresher. The Bible says in Revelation 13, it tells us how everything is going to come to pass. It's all right there in scripture. In Revelation the 13th chapter, notice what the Bible says. It is ever so clear. Watch what the Bible says. You see, you need to understand it. I am here to declare unto you that the twin towers have been attacked. And I am not talking about what's in downtown Manhattan. The holy twin towers that God has set up for the blessings and the benefit of humanity is under attack. And the Bible says in Revelation 13, notice what it says. You see, in Revelation 13, it says something very interesting. When you look at Revelation 13, talking about the second beast power, I want you to watch the language of scripture. The Bible says in Revelation 13, we're going to go ahead and go into some of the activities of this beast power. It says in verse 12, and he exercises how much power? All the power of the first beast before him. Now, wait a minute. It says he exercises how much power? All the power. All the what? All the power. So the question is this. Is this second beast the first beast? No. The second beast is distinct. Is that right? Do you mind if I teach? Alright. So notice. So the second beast is not the first beast. Correct? Now watch this. Because the second beast is not the first beast, it's distinct. But the role of the second beast is to exercise how much of the power? All the power of the? Now that first beast, who was that? That was Rome. So notice this. What was all that Rome had. Oh, you sound like the mixed multitude. Go to Revelation 13. Notice what it says in verse 7. Look at what the Bible says. Revelation 13, verse 7. What, what is all the power of the first beast? Let's notice what the Bible says. In Revelation 13, look at verse 3 carefully, and then we'll go to verse 7. Verse 3, it says, And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world did what? It wandered after the beast, right? Now look at verse 2. In verse 2 it says, And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of the lion, and the dragon gave him his what? Power. Seat. And great authority. You can't have seat, you can't have great authority until you first have power. So now we go down to verse 7. When you go to verse 7, the Bible shows us exactly what the power was that the first beast had that the second beast wants. It says in verse 7, and it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And what? And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. If you have power over a nation, what kind of power is that? That is 
civil power. When you have power over a nation and you can tell the nation what to do, that means you have civil power. Is that right? Verse 8. It says in verse 8, And all that dwell, how many? All that dwell upon the earth shall do what? Shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So in verse 7, it had power over the nation, which we call what kind of power? Civil power. But then in verse 8, it also exercises power to cause people to worship him. What kind of power is that? Religious power. So what do we see combined under the first beast? It had what? Civil and religious power. And as a result of civil and religious power, it can tell the world what it wants. The second beast says it is going to exercise how much? All the power. So that means the mission of the second beast is to have combined the union of church and state. This is the mission. This is the focus. You follow that? Now, watch this. So let's continue. Go back to Revelation 13. Now we're looking at verse 13. It says in Revelation 13, we're considering verse 13. And he doeth great wonders so that he maketh fire come down in heaven. Fire come down from heaven. Notice what it says. Fire down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. Saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make what? An image to the beast. We just studied what the image of the beast was. The image of the beast is the union of civil and religious power. Once civil and religious power comes together, then you can exercise the mark of the beast. So first you need image of the beast, then you have mark of the beast, which equates to persecution of the saints. Are you following? So when we're studying this, my brothers and sisters, this quote scares me. Because notice what was stated. When through the centuries she has made laws concerning Sunday rest, the church has had in mind above all the work of servants and workers. That was the trick. That was the benefit. Hey guys, this benefits you. And why is that important? Because according to Revelation 13, 14, this image of the beast that gets set up, it doesn't come from top down. It comes from bottom up. Saying to them that they should make an image to the beast. So the people are going to say, we want it. And then the powers that be are going to say, ask and you shall receive. So if ever there was a time that we need to be instruments of true education, it is right now. We must help the masses understand the deceptive powers that are going on in our world of how the devil is trying to destroy the twin towers. The gifts from God. God's holy institutions. Are you following? And so when we see that, that's why this bottom point right here should concern us. It says, therefore, also in the particular circumstances of our time, Christians will naturally strive to ensure that civil legislation respects their duty to keep Sunday holy. The beast wants you to be part of its team to destroy the Twin Towers. You understand that? Yes. And that's when I can go through a series of history because, brothers and sisters, I have so many documents. I back up and back up and back up my backups on my computer because I got too much data. 
There's too much information. We're going to cover some of this information in more detail in our training. I don't believe that we really understand the ramifications of what happens when this thing launches. I question, do we really understand what's going to happen according to the prophetic lens? And so God wants us to understand the Twin Towers are under attack and this is the movement that's trying to make it happen and now this is the man that's making sure it gets done. You see, it was in 2013 that he was inaugurated, but notice, right there in New York Times, just a month, he came in March 13th. One month after, April 26th, he already shot out his agenda. And notice what he said in 2013. It says, responding to the question, do we need to rediscover the meaning of leisure? Pope Francis replies, Together with a culture of work, there must be a culture of leisure as gratification. To put it another way, people who work must take the time to relax, to be with their families, to enjoy themselves, read, listen to music, play a sport. But this is being destroyed in large part by the elimination of the Sabbath rest day. Now, notice what he says next. More and more people work on Sundays. So that's the Sabbath rest day he's talking about. More and more people work on Sundays as a consequence of the competitiveness imposed by a consumer society. In such cases, he concludes, work ends up dehumanizing people. So he's putting out the case real strong. We need to get back to Sundays. To the point that it says, last October, about 250 bishops met in Rome for a conference on the movement called the New Evangelization. And it says, which focuses on reawakening faith in those already baptized. One of their conclusions was, even though there is a tension between the Christian Sunday and the secular Sunday, Sunday needs to be what? Recovered in keeping, they wrote, with John Paul's D.S. Domini. That's what we just read. That was 2013. That's why 2014. Again, Pope Francis says opening businesses on Sundays is not beneficial for society because the priority should be not economic, but... Now, you need to understand that. What did Rome say was their method of how they successfully, for centuries, passed Sunday laws? By focusing the emphasis on who? Workers and servants. Focus on the people. Present it as a benefit to the people. Well, here it goes. Pope Francis says opening businesses on Sundays is not beneficial for society. Because the priority should be not economic, but human. And that the stress should be on families and Friendships, not commercial relationships. Most people are looking at these articles and they think nothing, but the children of prophecy say we see a storm coming. You understand that? And that's why my brothers and sisters, oh, when this visit was taking place. I don't know about you. Do you know I downloaded every transcript of every speech he gave? I said, I went on, I said, transcript of this, transcript of that, because you know he had several meetings. And I said, I want all of it. I want all the data. And then after I get all the data, then I got to read it. And you go through all the reading, and you will be amazed to find out what the emphasis was. Because if any of you listen, you have to understand this was monumental. This was the first pope ever to address Congress. That's huge when you think of first and second beast. Now, when you look at that, my brothers and sisters, it's so deep. When you look at this here, I began to think about it. I listened. And one of the first things he said when President Obama was sitting right behind him, he said, I want to thank God for President Obama's emphasis on religious freedom. And I thought to myself, sir, you're a Jesuit. And Jesuits do not believe in religious freedom. Under Ignatius Loyola and the origin of the Jesuit order, 
The whole reason they exist is to destroy religious freedom and Protestantism. And to reestablish papal supremacy. That's the whole reason why they exist. So when he said that, I was like, I'm sorry, I don't buy it. I don't believe it. Straight up. I don't believe it. So I started thinking, okay, well, he's talking about, and he, and he mentioned it more than once. Religious freedom, religious freedom, religious freedom. So I'm looking at that, I'm like, religious freedom, he keeps talking about that. How's he going to spin it? And the next thing you know, this article. Started looking at Rudas. Very, very viable news article. And Ruder said this, September 28, 2015, U.S. World, United Nations Pope, Pope of the People and the Politics in Historic U.S. Visit. And here's what was stated. This was very interesting. Look at what it said. It said, Pope Francis dove into some of the United States' thorniest political debates during his historic visit by urging the world's wealthiest nation to welcome immigrants to end homelessness and do more to address climate change. So in other words, there were several things that he touched on, several things that he touched on. When he touched on it, you notice that as he was touching on it, what was the emphasis? Welcoming the immigrants. There was a big push more on that. Notice the next point. It says it right here. Sometimes his political messages were blunt, like when he pleaded before the US Congress for Americans to end hostility toward immigrants. He was pushing that thing. That was an emphasis for him. End hostility towards immigrants. Stop being so hard on the immigrants. And I'm thinking, why does that concern him? But it wasn't hard to figure it out. Look, it says sometimes his political messages were blunt, like when he pleaded before the U.S. Congress for Americans to end hostility towards immigrants. Other times, they were more subtle, like the climate-conscious Pope's decision to ride around in a tiny Fiat rather than a gas-guzzling SUV. Then it says this. While Vatican officials said the Pope was only restating church social teachings and not making political statements in his first U.S. visit ever, many in the public and across the political landscape saw it differently. It goes on to say, among them, 42-year-old Gabriela Munoz of Brooklyn, an undocumented immigrant from where? Mexico. Mexico, who said the Pope's comments on immigration had given her a lot of hope and faith. I said, interesting. Because he's stressing... Come on, guys, stop being so hostile towards immigrants. Let more in. And the immigrants, so they're not, what did, what did the Lord do? The Lord started impressing my mind. Well, who's the largest immigrants in America? Notice, CNN, September 28th. Asians on pace to overtake Hispanics among U.S. immigrants, study shows. Now watch this. U.S. population in when? 50 years is expected to be 441 million, with 88% of the growth from now until then coming from immigrants. Okay? So they're expecting a whole lot of more immigrants to come to the U.S. Then, when I looked at that, I was like, okay, Asians, they said, are soon to surpass. By the time we get to 50 years later, which I strongly question if we will have that much more time. I'm not saying we don't, but I strongly doubt it. And so it is, it says U.S. population in 50 years is expected to be 441 million with 88% of the growth from now until then coming from immigrants. Now, watch this. Pew estimates that 11.3 million immigrants in the United States are unauthorized to be here. The number of unauthorized immigrants from Mexico peaked in 2007 at 6.9 million. It's gone down ever since, the report says, and reached 5.9 million in 2012. Even so, they still make up the majority of what? 
unauthorized immigrants. So still, presently, the largest amount of immigrants coming into the U.S. are coming from where? What is the predominant religion of Mexico? Catholic. And according to the Bible, how will the image of the beast be set up? By the votes of the people. More immigrants, more Catholic vote. Eventually, beast wound healed. My brothers and sisters, the student of prophecy was supposed to see that. We were supposed to understand that. And we were supposed to see that the twin towers are being put under deep attack and God's Sabbath is going through it. But then the next question was, wait a minute. What about the other tower? I can see prophetically how it's being attacked. The Sabbath is under mass attack. But then what about the other tower? Did God prophesy about the downfall of the other tower? You see, the Bible also said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, I want you to turn with me to Matthew 24. Let's continue the verses. In Matthew 24, we can see it. These gifts from God, these divine institutions, the holy twins that God gave, they are prophetically going under attack, my brothers and sisters. And God wants something done about it. And so the Bible goes on to say in Matthew 24, and if you're there, please say amen. We're in Matthew now. We're looking at the 24th chapter. And when you get to Matthew 24, say amen. amen. Matthew 24 and verse 38. Continuing. It says in Matthew 24 and verse 38, For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And so we see that one of the signs of Noah's day is that people were going to be marrying and giving in marriage. Are you following? Now, is there anything wrong with marriage? Is it a gift from God? When it's done his way. And so when we go back to Genesis 6, let's take a look at what happened in the days of Noah. It was in Genesis, the sixth chapter, that when we look at the days of Noah, let us notice what the Bible says. Genesis, we're looking at the sixth chapter now, and I want you to watch what the text says as we look at Genesis 6, and we're going to look at verses 11 and 12. And when you get there, let me know by saying amen. In Genesis 6, verses 11 and 12, the Bible says, The earth also was what? Corrupt before God. And the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. So how much flesh corrupted their ways? All flesh. So according to the Bible, there was a prophecy that people are going to be marrying and giving in marriage, but they're going to do it in a corrupt manner. You understand that? And so we see that this also is prophecy. And so we can look now and we can learn there are many marriage corruptions today. The first probably most known and most popular form of the corruption of the other holy twin is none other than that thing called adultery. What is adultery? It's when a person who is unfaithful to their spouse or has violated someone else's marriage covenant. God showed that there was going to be a sweeping acts of behaviors by which there was going to be a corruption where women are going to start sleeping with other women's husbands. Men were going to start sleeping with other men's wives. 
Individuals, husbands and wives, are going to start becoming unfaithful and they're going to go ahead and go and violate the very covenant that they made before men and angels and God. And we see that this thing is happening all throughout. That's why we had to have a night dedicated to the subject, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Because this is truly a corruption of the blessed holy marriage covenant that God gave to humanity. But it's not just there. Because you also have things like common law marriage. That's a corruption, my brothers and sisters. What is common law marriage? It's an arrangement where two people who are not married live together in an emotionally and or sexually intimate relationship on a long-term or permanent basis. My brothers and sisters, if there's anybody that's living this type of way, that is a sin. It is a corruption of the true example and context and lesson book of godly marriage. People thinking, let's live together for a little while. I don't read that in the Bible. In fact, I had another lesson for my young people. A young man came to me one time and he said, Brother Lemon, he says, when should I leave and move out and get my own apartment and all these things? What do you think about it? I was thinking about moving out and getting my own apartment and, uh, you know, living on my own for a little while to try to get acclimated to life. Uh, what do you think I should do? And I said, well, doesn't matter what I think. I think everything matters what the Bible says. Don't you agree? And he said, yes. And I said, well, let's go to Genesis 2. We went to Genesis 2. And we looked at verse 24 carefully. And it said, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife. And then these two shall be one flesh. I said, according to the verse, where was this guy before he got married? He was with his father and his mother. I said, therefore, that's the Eden model. So you need to stay home. You see how simple that is? Do you know our young people get into some of the worst trouble once they start living on their own? Once you got an apartment to your own, do you understand how easy it is to fall into the bed of fornication? Do you understand how easy it is to party and fall under peer pressure? The Bible left the Eden model for us. The Eden model is you stay home. Jesus was home until 30. Why? Because you could not be a rabbi until you reached the age of 30. So Jesus did not enter into his rabbinical ministry until the appropriate age. And before he went into that ministry, he was home, brothers and sisters. You save yourself from a thousand perils. Now, obviously, I'm not talking about individuals who have to go away to colleges and schools and these type of scenarios. Those are a little bit different. But if you study home leadership, did you know that even the students that would go away to school and get educations, they were supposed to be some of the Advent band that would open their homes and let those young people stay there. I'm telling you, we need to study true education all over again because we're doing a lot of things way out of order. And so you'll find that this type of stuff is what's happening. So now you got a lot of young people saying, let me sow my wild oats. Let me go ahead and try some things out. Let me get myself acclimated to life, quote unquote. And then they fall into this death trap called common law marriage, of which only earth recognizes and not heaven. And so this is another marriage corruption. Then there's polygyny and polyandry. What is that? That's when a man has more than one wife and a woman has more than one husband. It's called polygyny and polyandry. These are all sorts of marriage corruptions that we are seeing in our world today. And then there's this one that's really popular amongst those in entertainment. It's called open marriage. You know what open marriage is? It allows extramarital affairs 
for both the spouses and both of them have the option of maintaining outside relationships beyond the marriage terms. It's becoming popular. This is the stuff that the world offers us. My brothers and sisters, the world has nothing to offer God's people. And we need to break these molds. And so it is that we look at all these marriage corruptions, and truly these things are corrupting marriage, but my brothers and sisters, Satan has saved his best for last. Because now we are living in a time where as bad as all of these are, we are now seeing ourselves in a time where now we have to deal with gay marriage. And I'm here to say, my brothers and sisters, that listen, I am a Christian and I believe in religious freedom. And I also believe in freedom of speech. And if a man wants to promote or if a woman wants to promote all of their endorsements for homosexuality and not suffer any consequences for their advocacy, the Christian ought to be able to do the same. I marvel at how hypocritical the homosexual community has become. Because years ago, when it was nowhere near as popular, cool, and fashionable to be gay, the homosexual community used to cry and say, why is it that people speak so strongly against us? Why is it that they persecute us? Why is it that we can't just express ourselves and live our lives, etc.? And they were mad. And now their day has arrived. And now everything from governments to courts and everybody else is on the side of homosexuality and transgender. And now, if a Christian simply wants to say this lifestyle is, according to the Bible, an abomination. And when they say that, all of a sudden they want to block people from coming to countries. That is hypocritical, my brothers and sisters. That is absolutely hypocritical. If you don't agree, you don't have to listen to it. If you don't agree, you don't need to stay into the church. If you don't agree, you can go away. You can find someone who speaks those words that you want to hear. But it is ungodly, it is inhumane, and it is absolutely hypocritical that just because now that the government's on your side, now you want to suddenly become a persecutor to the Christian. That is ungodly, my brothers and sisters, and that is hypocritical. And I stand on the word of God. My brothers and sisters, Jesus made it very clear in Matthew 19. He said from the beginning, it was not so. When God made them, God made them male and female. That's the Bible. And so it is that we see that this is the popular corruption today of marriage. And it is sweeping all throughout our society, my brothers and sisters. I look at this little chart. You see, this is the new equality now. This is the new equality. And so it is that when you look at the charts, if you look at growth of same-sex marriage, 2013, this is how many states approved. 2014, this is how many states approved. 2015, it was a done deal. Talk about great changes are soon to take place in our world and the final movements will be rapid ones. Volume 9 of the Testimonies, page 11. We are seeing this happen right before our faces. My brothers and sisters, the other twin is under attack. There's no way that we could ignore this, my friends. We have to understand, and as bad as this is, it's worse when it is endorsed by the church, my brothers and sisters. Churches who are more now into this friendship gospel. Churches that are actually saying, you know what, we need to just teach love as if love does not also give warnings and rebukes. 
The common response is, we must love them. We must love them. My brothers and my sisters, let me show you a new dynamic of love that many people apparently don't study. Go to Revelation chapter 3. The Bible says in Revelation, the third chapter, another dynamic of love that people need to understand. It is in Revelation, the third chapter. Notice what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 3. Notice what the Bible says, Revelation 3. And I notice what the text says as we consider Revelation 3 and verse 19. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 3, and we're considering verse 19. The Bible says, Revelation 3, 19. As many as I hate, as many as I love. What does Jesus do when he loves people? It says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous therefore and repent. So notice that love rebukes. Love chastens. Love loves you enough to tell you the truth. I say to the homosexual community, I love you too much to lie to you. The lifestyle of homosexuality is not something God created. You can't substantiate that with God's word. It is an effect or a result of the sinful nature. But God has promised us in 2 Peter 1 and verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might become partakers of the divine nature. And what's the effect of that? You will escape the corruptions that are in the world through lust, including this marriage corruption. That's what needs to be taught to the homosexual community. We need to love them enough to tell them the truth. Tell the truth in love. But love them enough to tell them the truth. It's funny, when I think of the movement of the Holy Spirit, you know the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is? Isn't that amazing? That's the first fruit, right? The fruit of the Spirit is? Love. So when the Spirit of God comes, he's on a love mission. Amen? But I thought it was interesting when you read John 16 and verse 8, it says that when the Comforter comes, he will reprove the world of sin. So that means that when the Spirit of God reproves or convinces the world of their sinful ways, that's actually a demonstration of godly love. Can you imagine that? And people think that muzzling our mouths and putting up little rainbow signs above our churches is letting people know. And then sometimes we got people that don't even go here. They don't just say, hey, all are welcome. I don't mind letting my brothers and sisters that are living homosexual lifestyle to say, hey, you're welcome in the church. So are fornicators, so are murderers, so are liars, and so is everybody else. But you need to understand you're going to hear a message that is a call for change. Through the power of God's Holy Spirit to the honor and glory of God in the name of Jesus. And that's what we are to do. So I don't have any problem with all are welcome. But the problem is, is when we say all are welcome to the point that now we're allowing transgenders to become elders. When a church begins saying it's all right for elders to be transgender, when these things are to be transgender, you see, my brothers, this is the image of transgender right now. This is the image that everybody in the world is praising and, and giving awards to. And he is very proud. I said he. Because he is not she. Forget religion. Even according to true science, a man cannot become a woman. So it's a mind game the world is playing on us. I literally have articles that I can show you that it is true, even from John Hopkins, that they tell you it is not true. It is a deception 
When an individual thinks that they can go from being a man to being a woman. It's a deception. It's all a mental game. It's not true. You understand that? So I am saying the truth. He. He can reassign and cut and change everything he wants. He's still a man. Now, the reality is this. I marvel at this because you got, you got churches today. Brothers and sisters, it's a, it's a scary day when churches, gay choirs, gay choir leaders, gay pastors, gay elders, transgender elders, all these things. We're seeing this all around now. And when these things happen, people start getting afraid. My brothers and sisters, we have to learn sooner or later when you stand for God, there may be consequences. We just have to accept it. But we got to love them enough to tell them the truth. Now this right here, if ever there was a direct application to this quote the bible says the woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man neither shall a man put on a woman's garment for all that do so are abomination unto the lord thy god that's deuteronomy 22 5 if ever that verse applies in our world today this is the primary application to deuteronomy 22 5 what we see happening in the transgender world today And so what's happening is that churches are allowing abominations to come on their pulpits. And God says that I'm raising up some workers that are going to cry and sigh against all the abominations that are in the world. My brothers and my sisters, this was never God's plan. This is how broad, this is how bad, and this is how deep that God's people have fallen. Lord have mercy. God says there has to be somebody that can rise up and raise up in love enough to stand up for the truth and say, no, call this thing out right for its right name. Somebody says, but Brother Lemon, I am a transgender, and I will tell you there is so much victory in Jesus. If a heart is willing, and the reason why is I'm in association with brothers who used to be gay and are no longer gay. I'm in association with people who used to practice this transgender lifestyle and today men have gone back to being men and women have gone back to being women. I have seen with my own eyes the power of the gospel. And just because the world doesn't understand it gives them no right to use the arm of the law to try to suppress the Christian for teaching the truth. It's the truth, my brothers and sisters. And last I checked, it's only truth that makes people free. And we don't even understand the down spiral of all this stuff that's coming along. Because you know what the popular question is today? You know what the popular question is? The popular question is, why two? People are saying, why two? If you're going to redefine marriage as not being between one man and one woman, then the question is, who gives you a right to say it's between one? Why not two? Why not three? And so today, we now have the same-sex throuples. This is real. This is the next group now to go to the courts. And the courts don't have a leg to stand on. And you know what's so deep? National apostasy is going to lead to national ruin. America has no idea what they did when they passed that vote. And now there's no turning back. God wants us to understand, my brothers and sisters. The twin towers are under attack and the last phase of our study, what should we do? What should we do? You know what we should do? We should do what Elijah did. You know what Elijah did? Go to Matthew 17. Let me show you what Elijah did. 
Bringing out some final points now. Matthew 17. Notice what Elijah did. Question is, what should we do? What should we do? I'll tell you what we should do. We should do what Elijah did. We should do what the patriarchs and the prophets of old did. Matthew, the 17th chapter. Let's notice what the Bible says. Amen. Praise God. In Matthew 17, notice what the Bible says. When you get there, please say amen. Amen. The Bible says in Matthew 17 and verse 11, it says, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come. And what's Elias going to do? He's going to restore how many things? Isn't that something? What did Elijah do? He restored all things. This was talking about first and foremost John the Baptist, but we know that it does not apply just to John the Baptist. It applies to those who will work under the spirit and power of Elijah in the last days. You see, my friends, we need to understand that even inspiration tells us in the time of the end, every what? Divine institution is to be what? Restored. Did you catch that? What were the two things that we studied about earlier in the study? We talked about how many divine institutions? Two. And now we're told that in the time of the end, how many? Every divine institution is to be restored, prophets and kings 678. And so we need to do a work that is endorsed with the spirit and power of Elijah, but we're going to follow the methodology of Nehemiah. My brothers and sisters, the title of our message is The Call of Nehemiah. God has made it clear. I want some Nehemiahs in these last days. I want you to watch this. This is in third Bible commentary, 1137, paragraph two. It says, we need Nehemiahs in this age of the world who shall arouse the people to see how far from God they are because of the transgression of his law. Nehemiah was a reformer, a great man raised up for an important time. As he came in contact with evil and every kind of opposition, fresh courage and zeal were aroused. It says his energy and determination inspired the people of Jerusalem and strength and courage took the place of feebleness and discouragement. His holy purpose, his high hope, his cheerful consecration to the work were contagious. It says the people caught the enthusiasm of their leader. And in his sphere, each man became a Nehemiah. And helped to make stronger the hand and heart of his neighbor. Here is a lesson for ministers of the present day. We need some Nehemiahs. You know why we need some Nehemiahs? Because I want to take you to this. Go to Nehemiah 13. Let's watch what Nehemiah did. When you look at what Nehemiah did, my brothers and sisters, I believe we can understand and I can understand why we need some Nehemiahs. You see, my brothers and sisters, what we went through this week was not just a good idea. What we went through this week, you see, what Pastor Tull and I talked about in my last visit a few months ago when we were praying and thinking about what should be the emphasis when I come. This wasn't supposed to be the subject. I wasn't going to talk about family. But it was through the leading of God's spirit. You're going to Nehemiah 13. It was under the leading of God's spirit that we touched and agreed and said, yes, we need to address the family. And what you need to understand is that what we've been covering all this week was actually prophetic. It was not just simply a good idea. It was prophetic. Watch Nehemiah 13. The Bible says in Nehemiah 13, starting at verse 15. I'll read verse 15. You do 16. I'll do 17. You do 18. We'll take it to 21. Notice what the Bible says. In Nehemiah 13, starting at verse 15. 
In those days saw I and Judas, some treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in sheaves and lading asses, as also wine, grapes, and figs, and all manner of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I testified against them in the day wherein they sold victuals. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said unto them, What evil thing is this that ye do and profane the Sabbath day? And it came to pass that when the gates of Jerusalem began to be dark before the Sabbath, I commanded that the gates should be shut and charged that they should not be open till after the Sabbath. And some of my servants said I at the gates that there should be no burden be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then I testified against them and said unto them, Why lodge ye about the wall? If ye do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time forth came they no more on the Sabbath. Nehemiah was not a priest. Nehemiah was a reformer. Oh, Seventh-day Adventists, you know that we are the last effort of the Reformation? Oh, I thank God for the Huguenots. I thank God for the Waldenses. I thank God for Wycliffe. I thank God for Huss. I thank God for Jerome. I thank God for Luther and, and Zwingli and all of the others. But my brothers and sisters, God raised up this movement because we're the last effort of the Reformation. We are reformers, my brothers and sisters. And that's exactly what Nehemiah was. And when Nehemiah saw that there was a perversion of God's holy Sabbath day, Nehemiah did a work of Sabbath reform. He was used by God to bring back honor and glory to God as it related to the Sabbath. But my brothers and sisters, notice the twin that Nehemiah also worked on. Verse 23. Same method. I'll read 23 and UV 24. It says, in those days also saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and Moab. And I contended with them and cursed them and smote certain of them and plucked off their hair and made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons for yourselves or for yourselves. Shall we then hearken unto you to do all this great evil, to transgress against our God in marrying strange wives? Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites together. Thus cleansed I them from all strangers and appointed the wards of the priests and the Levites, everyone in his business. 
Nehemiah did not just do a work of Sabbath reform, but Nehemiah also did a work of marriage reform. Nehemiah, my brothers and sisters, he honored God. He honored the divine institutions. He honored the twins. And in the very last moments of earth's history, we are told that we need more Nehemiahs. And God wants us to honor him. You see, right now, when we read Isaiah 58, verses 11 onward to 14, we read that there was a breach that was made and that there's a group that God has called up to be repairers of the breach. But the problem is we only understand the breach in the context of the Sabbath. But my brothers and sisters, we are more intelligent now because the Sabbath had a twin. And when you affect one, you affect both. And so if we're really going to repair the breach, then by the grace of God, we really need to repair the breach. We need to address both. We can't go telling everybody about God's holy Sabbath day of rest and then they come to our homes and see how messed up our homes are. See how unloving husband and wife is one to another. How careless and rambunctious children are. My brothers and sisters, we have to understand if we're truly going to give the message of God's Sabbath, remember the effect of what the Sabbath was supposed to do. It was to draw us to the creator and to creation. It was to cause us to remember redemption. It was to cause a love that would bring forth holiness within our hearts and in our homes seven days a week. And it was primarily to be demonstrated in the home. That's the sign of the true Sabbath keeper. That is showing the effect of what God wanted to accomplish. And so we can't be so concerned about helping the world and helping everybody else understand how wrong they are because they're worshiping on the wrong day while sometimes their homes might be in better condition than ours. My brothers and my sisters, I leave you with this quote. This quote means everything to me and it should mean everything to you. In Adventist Home, page 32, paragraph 2, it says the greatest evidence. What is it? Don't you want to give to the world the greatest evidence? It says the greatest evidence of the power of Christianity that can be presented to the world is a well-ordered, well-disciplined family. This will recommend the truth as nothing else can. For it is a what kind of witness? It's a living witness of its practical power upon the heart. You see, my brothers and sisters, the reason why there's so much gay marriage is because they said, we looked at you heterosexuals and you failed. They're literally looking at us and they're saying, you can talk all your Bible verses you want. I want to see the power of your God in your home. Literally, that's the argument that they're giving. They said, all right, you can, you can disprove me. They're saying, you can show me. I can't refute what you're saying from your Bible. But the problem is, I don't see what your Bible prophesied happening in your house. Amen. It's not the homosexuals with the highest divorce rates. It's the heterosexuals. Yeah. It's not the homosexuals that are going around having all the estranged children. It's the heterosexuals. So they're saying, if your God is so right, why is it we don't see his power? So what God is saying, the world has a right to see the gospel. We owe it to them, my brothers and sisters. We owe it to them. We got to stop professing. I don't even understand how some of us can come to church. 
And we can literally have worship knowing that we're harboring anger, bitterness, hatred, and resentment towards people we pledge to love for better or for worse, rich or for poorer, sickness and in health, till death do we part. And many of us are realizing we lied. We lied. Because as soon as it got worse, we were ready to write divorce papers. As soon as it got worse, we started looking on the other side of the grass. Thinking that it was going to be greener. And we don't understand. We're destroying our homes. We're destroying our children. We're destroying our church. And we're destroying our witness. And we're breaking God's heart. This is why God says there needs to be a reform. We need to have a far greater emphasis on the family than just a week. We cannot just simply go and do family events here or there. Everything must circle around it, my brothers and sisters. We must understand what it is to be a true godly family. And that's why we were studying what we were studying all week. All week. Plead with God. Lord, show me how my home can be nothing less than heaven on earth. Nothing less. Show me, Lord. God will show you. He'll show brothers and sisters how to love each other. He will show children how to love their parents. He will show husband how to love his wife. He will show his wife how to love her husband. God can bring us back. He can reunite us. You got to believe it. But if all we think is we got some edge on the rest of the world because we keep Sabbath and they keep Sunday, we're deceiving ourselves. We'll be in the same exact lake of fire that many of them will be. And even worse, some of us will be in the lake of fire and they won't. Because they lived up to more light that they had than we did. God says, I want to change that. God says, I want to change that. There is enough righteousness and there's enough power in one man to give to the whole planet. And his name is Jesus. Jesus can give you real victory. He can show you and I how to turn our homes into heaven and he will get all the credit for it, my brothers and sisters. I've made a decision. One day I got tired. I said to myself, I said, you know what? Why is it that there's so many promises in the Bible? There's promises for the home. There's promises for finances. There's promises for health. There's all these promises. Yet, when you generally come amongst the people of God, you don't see those promises realized. Some of God's people are so financially destitute, they can't even take care of their needs. While they're serving a God who says, I will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. There are people that live like that. Seven-day Adventists sometimes are slapping five with the world saying, I got cancer too. I got type 2 diabetes too. I got hypertension just like you. I'm sick and stressed out just like you, but I'm connected to the God of heaven and earth. I'm thinking to myself, I don't understand this, Father. You have a Bible that we claim to believe that has so many promises in it. But when you do an assessment amongst the people of God, you see we are constantly lacking or at best lopsided. Maybe we are experiencing one of the 20 promises. But God, here, here goes God saying, I said all 20. God says, I promised all 20. So the problem is not with God. The problem is with us. And so one day, I made a resolve. I said, Father, I covenant with you. I will never look to man ever again for my example. 
I used to actually search out for mentors. I used to go to uh, elders and others and I would say, would you be my mentor? I literally did that. I asked people, would you be my mentor? Would you teach me? And the best answer that they gave was, I'm sorry, I'm too busy. Because later on, I saw how some of their homes are so destroyed that I said, Lord have mercy, if I would have sat under their leadership, their image might have been reflected in me. And my home might have ended up like theirs. And so God had to force me. God, I remember one day I'm driving in my car and I had tears in my eyes. Because I want to grow, brothers and sisters. Everything God wants, I want that thing. You understand me? So I'm like, Lord, why is it so hard? I'm trying to, to grow. I need a mentor. And it was almost like literally the still small voice. And God just says, I'll be your mentor. And the only reason I didn't accept that option so many years was because I didn't trust him. I thought I knew he was real, but I didn't think he was real enough to be a guide and an instructor and a counselor to me. And so God blocked every time I went to a person. God would block it and block it because God was saying, you are mine. Amen. God says, I want you on my own. And so one day I yielded. And I no longer looked to man. Do you know, I'm serious, my brother. Do you know? It's been years, nobody knows my business. Nobody knows my business. Why? Because I have learned to go to God. I have gotten to a place in my relationship with him. And keep, me, keep in mind that I'm not saying I've arrived, because I'm telling you in advance, I have not arrived. I want to make that very clear. All right? I am a piece of work. I guarantee you that. But what I've done is I've gone to God. I know how to go to my father when I got issues. I know how to go to him. And I can trust him. And so it is that I got to that place, my brothers and sisters. And what I'm saying to you is I said, Father, I want everything you promised me. I said, show me where I need to be in you. That when it comes to finances, I'm going to be exactly where I need to be because of what you promised. When it comes to my home, I want to know exactly what it is to be the best husband on planet Earth. And by your grace, help me to become such. I want to be the best father in the world. By your grace, show me how to become such. And my brothers and sisters, I'll say this. I have not arrived. But I am not who I was yesterday. I'm telling you, I see the progression. I see what God is doing. He's literally changing my mind. He's changing the way I think. He's changing the way I'm reacting. And now you ask me how I know he lives? He lives because he's in my heart. And there's room. There's room. He wants to be in your heart. Do you understand, brothers and sisters? This is God's great desire. He wants to make your heart his home. We have to stop fighting. We have to stop fighting. Surrender. You can't beat God. You're not going to win, brothers and sisters. You just might lose out on everything, but you definitely will not win. We've got to get to that place. I'm not going to sing it anymore, Lord. Now, by your grace, I'm going to live it. I surrender all. There's some of us in this room, we are not at that place. We are making excuses for our sins. We try to blame others for our adulterous behaviors. We try to blame others for our intemperate actions. We try to blame others for all these things. And some of us have been celebrating sin. And trying to act like sin didn't happen when it happened. 
my brothers and my sisters. We need help. We need help. When you and I realize, Lord, I need help. God can help you. And so my question is simple. Is there anybody in this room that says, I realize I need help. And if you do, please stand to your feet. I want to pray with you. We don't have it all together. We need help. We are in a desperately wicked condition. And we need the righteousness that only heaven can give. And I don't know about you, but I'm so glad. After all these years and all this rebellion, his arms are still outstretched. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. To save a wretch like me. Arms still outstretched. Is there somebody in this room that you have not settled between yourself and God when it comes to honoring him and keeping holy his Sabbath day of rest? There might be even one person who says, that's me. I've never made an intelligent, deliberate decision to follow Christ and honor him by keeping his Sabbath. Is there one? I just want to see your hand. Amen. God bless you, sister. God bless you. Is there another who says, yes, that's me. I've never made a decision to honor God and to keep his holy Sabbath day rest. God bless you, brother. Amen. Praise God. Amen, sister. That's it. That's it. Is there anybody else? Listen, folks, some of us have been playing games with God. We've fallen into routines. And some of us don't even know how to enter into God's rest. Would there be another who says, yeah, that's me, man. I need to learn it all over again. And if that's you, I just want to give you an opportunity if you've never made such a declaration and decision. My brothers and my sisters, God doesn't want to just restore one twin. He wants to restore both. Because they're indissolubly linked together. And may all of us become God's Nehemiahs. When everybody else becomes cowards, may we become courageous. When everybody else ceases to love, may we overflow with it. And when many a star that we have admired for their brilliancy will go out in darkness, may we continue to shine bright and beautiful for our master. And may God get all the credit. Let us pray. Our loving Father, we thank you. We praise you that in these last moments of earth's history, You are raising up Nehemiahs that will do such a restorative work under the power of your Holy Spirit that the two divine institutions, the Holy Twins, that mean so much to humanity and have been scarred and marred by this world. Please, Lord, show us by your grace and your power how we can demonstrate Not just talk about it, not just preach it, but demonstrate the power of the gospel. And I thank you for everyone who took their stand. I thank you for those few hands that have gone up, that have never made a decision to honor you and to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, considering how it was such a precious gift given to us. Dear God, please. Give us sound minds and sound hearts 
Surround us with the presence of thy holy angels and show us how we may live for you, serve you, and love you, and be faithful even unto death. For it is then and only then that we shall have our crowns of life. And from one Sabbath to another, during the time of the eternal marriage between humanity and divinity, we will praise you. Thank you, dear God. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 This message is produced by PTH Ministries. Our mission is to spread the three angels' messages through preaching and teaching the Seventh-day Adventist message and to integrate healing through medical missionary work in declaring the gospel. For more information on our ministry and the resources we provide, please log on to our website at www.pthministries.com. That's www.pthministries.com. Or you can call us at 770-274-9537. That's 770-274-9537. May we do our part to meet the needs of humanity through the everlasting gospel and hasten Christ's return. Maranatha.